When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Little Orphan Annie has been a part of American pop culture for nearly a century. First as a comic strip which made its debut in the summer of 1924, then as a popular radio show in the 1930s, which spun off into a couple of film productions later in that decade and a hit Broadway musical in 1977. Though the musical version has been adapted to the big screen a few times over the years, most recently in 2014, this 80s flick version is by far the best known big screen version. So leave the orphanage behind, jump aboard the autocopter, and start warming up your singing voice as my daughter Hannah Williams and I discuss Annie from 1982 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Why any kid would want to be an orphan is beyond me. Annie's got it all. All the fun. All the power. All the knockouts. Who's next? All the music. All the romance. Wouldn't you like to see the bedroom? That little billiard ball? All the laughter. Leaping, it? All the excitement. It's Annie. You haven't seen Annie until you've seen the movie rated PG. Hello, movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. On each episode, I'm joined by an 80s flick-loving guest co-host to talk about one of the great and sometimes not-so-great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser-known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now-defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which 80s flick we choose for each episode, we have a lot of fun sharing first-time watch memories, discussing our favorite iconic scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and follow 80s Flick Flashback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And while you're there, leave us a stellar written review and a five-star rating. You can also support the show by following us on our social media pages. Just search for 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And don't forget to check out our website, 80sflickflashback.com as well. If you want to take your support to the next level, you can become a financial partner for less than $10 a month. The link to financially support the podcast is located in our episode show notes. And while you're there, be sure to check out more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Thanks for listening. Now, on with the show. 
Thank you for joining us for this special episode that's coming out the weekend of Thanksgiving. Even though this isn't necessarily a Thanksgiving movie, it does talk about family and uh, it's kind of a family film, I guess. It's like a thankful kind of thing. Yeah. Because Andy's like thankful for uh, Mr. Warbucks mm-hmm. and uh, the assistant Grace mm-hmm. for like taking her in for the week and then actually adopting her. Yeah, exactly. So uh, as you hear, this is my daughter, Hannah. Say hello, Hannah. Hello. She is joining me for this uh, family-friendly episode, which all of our episodes are kind of family-friendly, but this yeah, is definitely sure. a family-friendly uh, movie. But the funny thing about this, Hannah is 13, so she did not, she was not alive when this movie came out. Definitely uh, not. <laughs> not. But she did see the Annie version from 2014, which was her first introduction to kind of this movie, this story. Yeah. Uh, and I think we had... St- well, you tell us. When, when we, we started to watch this version. We started to watch it, and then... Back um, then. Yeah, back... Uh, like, yeah. The 2014 one I first liked, and then you told me that it was an older version. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. We can try and see it, because I, I didn't know what it was like. And then I heard uh, the girl who plays Annie singing, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, it sounds like an old lady. So <laughs> I just... I, I didn't want to watch it anymore. And then here we are, like, what? I don't know how long that was. Eight years later? Eight years later. Uh, I watched it, and I actually liked it. Yeah. Yeah. We're a little older, so the the 2014 version is definitely faster-paced, and, of course, the songs are much more contemporary. So when you were that, for, for the age you were when that one came out, that one was definitely more geared towards your demographic or, yeah, yeah more for you. Whereas this one's older, so, but you've, this one, and this one we were talking about it when we were watching it, is more based on the Broadway version. version, the musical version, so it plays a lot like a Broadway version, and because you've been involved in some theater, you kind of understand how that flow is a little bit slower or different than yeah. the, uh, the the 2014 version, so. And it, it, the graphics were really weird, because it's old. <laughs> Yes. I'm just not used to it. So. My daughter calls movies I saw as a kid old. Yes, it's because it is old. It's 1900s <laughs> or something. So yes, it's old. All right. Well, uh, I saw this for the first time, not in the theaters, but I remember when I was a kid and we had HBO. They would send a. It was almost like its own little TV guide that had all the movies that were going to be on HBO. What times they came on because we didn't have a guide on our TV back then to tell us that. But I remember it was at Christmas, and it was on Christmas Day, and it didn't tell us what was going to be played on Christmas Day for like that, you know, 8 o'clock that night, that prime time slot for that night. It would just set a special surprise or a special movie presentation, and we were like, me and my sister were like, oh my gosh, what's it going to be? What is this movie they're going to play on Christmas, this special? And then about a week or so before that, they started showing the commercials that they were going to show Annie, this version of Annie, was the movie they were going to play at Christmas. So I've always associated this movie with the holidays because uh, I watched it, I guess, on Christmas when I was a kid, probably in 1983, I guess, at that point, when it came on HBO. So when I went back and watching it today, we went back and watched it, um, I thought it was interesting that nothing really takes place in the winter, even though I doing research, I found out that uh, the finale in the Broadway version actually happens at Christmas, but they changed it to 4th of July, uh, for the movie because it was cheaper to to do that 
uh, and also because it came out in the summertime. But I thought that was that was interesting. But it had been a long time since I'd watched this all the way through because even when we tried to watch it back in 2015, probably yeah. it we didn't make it that far into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'd forgotten a lot of the songs in it because and we it was funny because we recognized the songs that they had. Uh, updated for the 2014 version while yeah. watching this one and how different they were uh, in, in 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 this one so but we'll talk a little bit about that as we go but did you like it but you did like it right yeah I said that yeah, yeah. I liked it okay it was, it, was, it, was, it was good good it's not the best as like 2014 one you still like the 2014 one better yes, <laughs> yes, yes that's yes. okay <laughs> that's all right I liked it too I mean the 2014 version is definitely different but there are things in it <clears throat> that I like. I don't think it got the. I don't think either movie tells the story exceptionally well, but they both have really good songs and good moments in them. Yeah. So, like, I, I'm sorry. Okay. I'm I'm better at the. Uh, it's better for me with like more scenes to actually talk to each other mm-hmm. and like get engaged with mm-hmm. each other than just singing and singing <laughs> and singing the entire time. Right, but that's what the Broadway musicals are like. I know, but it's. But it's different watching it as a movie, right? Yes. Gotcha. Okay. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about how this movie got made, because that's what we're doing on my podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I guess, and yeah. Little Orphan Annie was a daily American comic strip created by Harold Gray and syndicated by the Tribune Media Services. The strip took its name from the 1885 poem Little Orphan Annie by James Whitcomb Riley, and it made its debut on August 5th, 1924, in the New York Daily News. The plot followed the wide-ranging adventures of Annie, her dog Sandy, and her benefactor, Oliver Daddy Warbucks. Following Gray's death in 1968, several artists drew the strip, and for a time, classic strips were reruns. Little Orphan Annie inspired a radio show in 1930, film adaptations by RKO in 1932, and Paramount in 1938, and a Broadway musical Annie in 1977. The original stage play premiered at the Alvin Theater, now the Neil Simon Theater, and won seven Tony Awards, including Best Musical and Best Book of a Musical. So after winning a bidding war with Paramount Pictures, Columbia purchased the rights to the Broadway musical for $9.5 million. Film producer Ray Stark wanted both John Huston and Joe Layton, while working as the director and choreographer respectively, to also be the executive producers on the film because it was too large of an enterprise for one person. Regarding Houston being given the job of directing the film and what would be his only musical in his 40-year directing career, screenwriter Carol Sobiski stated, Hiring John Houston is an outsider risk, and Ray Stark was a major gambler. He loves the kind of high-risk situation. The film cost over $35 million, with some suggesting it cost as much as $59 million after marketing and distribution, making it one of the most expensive films at the time, and the most expensive project financed by Columbia Pictures up to that point. So they put a lot of money into this movie. I know you couldn't tell that by watching it. I mean, like the the house that uh, Mr. Wilkes that, mm-hmm. that 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 was probably expensive, and then like all the clothes and uh, mm-hmm. the costumes, the costumes and uh, like the choreographer for the dances. You probably had to pay for that each, each time. Yeah, and then, but you had all those. All the dancers and the extras that they needed for the big, big, big numbers. Can you talk about how yeah. there's a lot more people in this movie than there were in the 2014 one? Yeah. Yeah. 
So, but yeah, I mean, just the, yeah, they spent a lot of money on it. And you can, you can see they're trying to make a big, grand, grand movie. So, so a little bit more about uh, the pre-production. So, Sabisky, the writer, wrote the screenplay, introduced two, I'm sorry, introduced major differences between the stage musical and the film ad- adaptation. Uh, as I mentioned before, in the stage musical, it is Christmas when Miss Hannigan, Rooster, and Lily are caught at the Warbucks mansion by the United States Secret Service, thus foiling their plan to kidnap Annie. While in the film, due to summertime shooting, Annie is kidnapped and on the eve of 4th of July, leading to Warbucks organizing a citywide search and a climactic ending on the B&O Bridge. Punjab and the Asp, Warbucks' servants slash bodyguards from the original comic strip, appear in the film in supporting roles. Miss Hannigan's redemption at the end is also a new development on the part of the film. In the musical, Miss Hannigan briefly balks at Rooster's intention to make Annie disappear with his switchblade, but is soon lured by his premise of a life on Easy Street. In the 1980 novelization, Miss Hannigan shows no qualms whatsoever about Annie being killed. In both of these media, Miss Hannigan ends up being arrested alongside Rooster and Lily at the Warbucks mansion. The film also featured five new songs, Dumb Dog, Sandy, Let's Go to the Movies, Sign, and We Got Annie. It also cut We'd Like to Thank You, Herbert Hoover, NYC, You Won't Be an Orphan for Long, Something Was Missing, Annie, and New Deal for Christmas. In addition, the song Maybe has two reprises, whereas Little Girls and Easy Street do not. Martin Sharman, the lyricist for Annie, was not impressed with the cinematic interpretation. In a 1996 interview, he dismissed the adaptation and its production. He said the movie distorted what the musical was, and we were culpable for the reason that we did not exercise any kind of creative control because we sold the rights for a considerable amount of money. He even said that Houston, who had never directed a musical before, and producer Ray Stark made major changes in the film that destroyed the essence of Annie. Warbucks, played by Finney, he said, was an Englishman who screamed. Hannigan, played by Burnett, he called a man-crazy drunk, and Annie was cuted up, quote-unquote. Worse, the emotional relationship between Annie and Warbucks are distorted. It can also be said he didn't like the 1999 Disney version or the 2012 Broadway production either, so it seems like he only liked the version that he wrote. That's probably, uh, probably like, selfish. Yeah. Or self-centered. Yeah. It's probably possible. He probably just, he's, he liked what he did and he didn't like, they changed it. So that happens a lot and, yeah. and those kind of things. So, uh, so we mentioned uh, John Houston as the director uh, for those on the podcast would know he wrote the screenplays for most of the 37 feature films he directed, many of which are today considered classics, including the Maltese Falcon in 1941, the treasure of Sierra Madre in 1948, the asphalt jungle in 1950, the African Queen in 1951, The Misfits in 61, Fat City in 72, The Man Who Would Be King in 75, and Pritzi's Honor in 1985. During his 46-year career, Houston received 15 Academy Award nominations, winning twice. He also directed both his father, Walter Houston, and his daughter, Angelica Houston, to Oscar wins as well. So he was a very well-established director at the time, even though this was not the type of movie that people expected him to make. Yeah. Yeah. No, you haven't seen any of those. (laughs) One day, maybe you watch. I can't really agree on that because I've never seen them. I can't say I've seen. I've seen the African Queen, and that's probably the only one I know that I watched. I know the Maltese Falcon. I probably need to watch because it's considered a classic. 
the treasure of Sierra Madre, I think I've seen part of, uh, and I never saw Pritzi's honor, but anyway, but so yeah, these are considered like classic films, uh, that you probably won't appreciate until you get older because they're much slower. Uh, the way they made movies back then were kind of a more slow paced. Okay. Yeah. And now these messages. Hey, 80s Flick lovers, just want to take a few minutes and say thanks again for listening to the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We don't have any shout-outs to new subscribers this time, but if you'd like to support the podcast on a monthly basis through buymeacoffee.com, we do offer three tiers of support. We have Cult Classic for $5 a month, Be Kind, Please Rewind for $10 a month, and Box Office Blockbuster for $15 a month. You can even receive an 80s flick flashback t-shirt if you become a box office blockbuster member. So don't miss out. You can also leave a one-time donation for $5 or more if you choose. Just go to our website, 80sflickflashback.com, or the link in the show notes for more details and how to start your subscription membership. We'll always offer free episodes. We'll never put any of our past seasons or episodes behind a paywall. But it does cost money to keep the podcast running. Since the creation of the podcast, I've personally paid monthly for the website, the Zoom account, various movie rentals and streaming subscriptions, marketing tools, and any other miscellaneous expenses that pop up from time to time. If you love the show, then please consider being one of our subscription members through buymeacoffee.com. Every little bit helps, and it's greatly appreciated. Hey, you can also support the show by buying an official logo t-shirt, sweatshirt, or sticker from our brand new online store. There are multiple styles and colors to choose from, so go check out the selection also on our website as well as the link in the show notes. If you want to do something special for my birthday coming up in November or just for the holidays, you can find my Amazon wish list at the link in the show notes. I've compiled a list of Blu-rays and DVDs that I want to add to my collection, some are 80s, some are not, as I move away from digital content and back to physical copies. Hey, if you love 80s pop music and movie soundtracks as much as I do, you can also find the 80s flick flashback movie songs mix playlist on Apple Music. It's full of hit songs like Footloose, Ghostbusters, and Purple Rain, as well as some deeper cuts from 80s flicks like Catch Me Now I'm Falling from Hiding Out, Rhythm of the Night from The Last Dragon, and Babysitting Blues from Adventures in Babysitting. This would have been my ultimate movie soundtrack mixtape growing up if I could have found a cassette tape to hold seven hours worth of songs. Thanks again for listening. I really do appreciate every one of you, and I'm amazed each week to watch the number of new listeners grow. It's because of you and your support that the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast is still going strong. Let's keep the fun going. Now, let's get back to the show. Let's talk about all the people that were cast in the movie. Okay. Eileen Quinn is the one who played Annie. Eileen was introduced to show business by her mother, who was doing theater when Eileen was growing up. Eileen begged to audition as well, and she began to get parts near her home of Yardley, Pennsylvania, her first show being, ironically, Annie Get Your Gun. Eileen's first movie part was one line in the movie Paternity in 1981, which starred Burt Reynolds. At the time Eileen was picked for the movie, she was in the Broadway show Annie as the swing orphan. The swing essentially understudied various orphan roles in the show, knew all their parts, and had to go on stage at a moment's notice if one of the actors was sick and couldn't perform, averaging two or three times a week. So could you imagine 
like say that you were at production at the Henry Players mm -hmm. and you had to understudy like three or four pe different people's parts. Yeah. So if they just got sick during a performance, you'd have to jump in and take their role. So that's what she did in Annie. Would that freak you out? If I could remember everything, then yes. Yeah, well, that's the understudy. The understudy has to do that. So basically, she was an understudy that had to, she had to know all the parts of multiple of the orphans in the yeah. show. But I don't think she ever got to play Annie when she was doing it on Broadway. She was just, she just knew the other orphans. I remember when um, I was in fourth grade, um, we would do the Christmas play each year before COVID started. And mm -hmm. then um, I was an understudy for one of the girls. Okay. I was the understudy for the solo, I think. Gotcha. Okay. So a year later, she was chosen to be Annie in the film version from over 8,000 girls throughout the world. The announcement was made in January 1981 by director John Huston, who introduced Eileen as his Annie to the world on nationwide TV. Annie was filmed from April to September 1981. Eileen was under contract for six years to make Annie 2 and possibly Annie 3, but those projects never materialized. When the contract expired, Eileen was then approached to star in a new film version of The Frog Prince in 1986, which they aired on the Disney Channel often. While Eileen was under contract, she continued to perform and went back to her theater roots. Uh, other actresses that were tried out for the role as Drew Barrymore auditioned for the role, as well as Amanda Peterson, best known for her role in 1987's Can't Buy Me Love. Amanda Peterson made the top seven, but was ultimately offered a smaller role. And the reprise of Dumb Dog, she sings Rover when you think it over. It turned out to be her film debut. So I know you don't know who that is, but she was in another big 80s movie that one day we'll probably watch. So, okay. so did you like the girl who played Annie, Eileen, in the movie? Yes, but um, today when we started the, uh, like the, when we started it and mm -hmm. the, they were all singing, uh, mm -hmm. like during like the intro of the, of the movie, she, she sounded... She sounded really weird, but then when uh, we actually got into the movie, she sounded she sounded nothing like it. Yeah. Well, at the beginning, you couldn't see her face. You just heard a voice singing, and so because you didn't know who it was, you thought it was an older lady, not a little girl, right? Yeah. yeah. I thought it was an old lady. She's just <laughs> an old lady. So then we've got Albert Finney as Oliver Daddy Warbucks. His roles have ranged from Ebenezer Scrooge in the musical version of Scrooge from 1970 to Daddy Warbucks and Annie, and in flamboyant over-the-top makeup, Hercule Poirot in Murder on the Orient Express in 1974. He appeared as Minister of Police Joseph Fouché in Ridley Scott's suburb period of drama The Duelist in 1977. Uh, he's been in some other stuff, too. I'll skip over. Uh, his final movie credit was in the James Bond thriller Skyfall in 2012. Sean Connery was director John Huston's first choice for Oliver Warbucks, According to the UK's Daily Express, he was even taking singing lessons for the part. So we just talked about Sean Connery in our Untouchables episode uh, that came out a couple weeks ago. But uh, he was interesting as Daddy Warbucks. I can't really say. He was loud. Like, I, I understand the critique about Warbucks just well, being someone who shouts a lot. Because that's pretty much all he did in this movie was kind of yell. Well, I mean, one, he's a millionaire. Two, he's stressed because he has to do all this stuff. And then he's probably like, he, I know he didn't like uh, President Roosevelt yeah. either. So yeah. I think that's into that yelling. Okay. Or whatever. And then in the beginning when he, he, he when he said, uh, 
about the about Annie. He wanted a boy and mm-hmm. a girl. Right. And then she just like, oh well, okay. <laughs> uh, and then all this like important like stuff, and he's like, you know what? I changed my mind. You're you're staying. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, moving right along, we got Carol Burnett as Miss Agatha Aggie Hannigan. Miss Hannigan, of I'm course. Sorry, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Why, why would Miss Hannigan have a first name when no one ever used it? They didn't, but that was her. That was her name. I mean, her name from the comic. Her name, I think, in the comic strip was actually Miss Asthma instead of Agatha, and so they changed it to Agatha. I know it was interesting. So, but Carol Burnett, of course, is known for her groundbreaking comedy variety show, The Carol Burnett Show, which I grew up on. Originally aired on CBS and was one of the first of its kind to be hosted by a woman. She has performed on stage, television, and film in varying genres, including dramatic and comedic roles. She's received numerous accolades, including six Primetime Emmy Awards, a Tony Award, a Grammy Award, and seven Golden Globe Awards. Burnett was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in, 20, sorry, in 2005, the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor in 2013, and the Screen Actors Guild Life Achievement Award in 2015. I thought it was interesting. Bette Midler was considered for the role before Burnett was chosen, which I could see Bette Midler really eating this role up as well. But I remember as a kid, because we used to watch the Carol Burnett show, because it would come on as a rerun um, at night when we would usually sit down to watch, I mean, sit down to eat dinner. So she was probably the reason why I really liked the movie because I knew her from the Carol Burnett show, but she was funny in this. I liked her. Yeah. I mean, she was, she was okay, but I mean, just didn't like how, uh, in one of the scenes she was, it was funny how, um, she was going to pour that, the, uh, alcohol in the cup, but then she, Mm -hmm. but then she would do it and then she would drink out of the, the actual bottle bottle Mm -hmm. instead of the cup. And then, uh, this one thing that didn't make sense to me is that she filled the bathtub with water and alcohol. All right. So one thing you don't know about this movie is this movie was set during Prohibition. And there was a time in American history when Prohibition meant that you could not out drinking alcohol was completely illegal. Like nobody could drink alcohol at all. So what people did is they would make their own, which people called moonshine, but they would make their own alcohol in the bathtub. So that's what she was doing. She was actually making that her own alcohol in the bathtub. So it wasn't water in the tub. It was just filled with alcohol. So that's what she would kept. That's what she was filling her 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 bottle up with. Okay. So does it make sense? It makes sense. Better sense. But in the scene, she was like filling it up with water. Like water was coming out of, oh. of the faucet. Thing. Maybe she was trying to dilute it some. I don't know. Or she was trying to take a bath in it. I yeah. Don't know. I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> We didn't get much into that scene. Right. Right. But she was still good. We will never know. We know, yeah. <laughs> so then we have Anne Reinking as Grace, renowned more for her dancing than acting. She danced in many Broadway shows. She made her film debut in Movie Movie in 1978, and the following year starred opposite Roy Scheider and Jessica Lange in Bob Fosse biopic All That Jazz in 1979, which won many Oscar nominations, including a nod for Best Picture. After her role in Annie, her next and final film role was in Blake Edwards' 1984 comedy Mickey and Maud with Dudley Moore. She got married and decided to only pop up on TV or stage productions going forward. It was evident that she's a dancer because the dance scenes she did were really good. Like, I could tell she was a really good dancer. She was good in this, too. I mean, small role, but I thought she was pretty good. Yeah. And then Tim Curry as Rooster. 
<laughs> Tim Curry rose to prominence for his portrayal of Dr. Frankenfurter in the film Rocky Horror Picture Show in 1975, reprising the role he had originated in the 1973 London and 74 Los Angeles musical stage productions. Curry received further acclaim for his film and television roles, including Rooster and Annie, Darkness and Legend in 85, his part in Clue in 85, Pennywise in the miniseries It in 1990, and The Concierge in Home Alone 2 Lost in New York in 1992. He was also in The Three Musketeers in 93 and long, played Long John Silver in Muppet Treasure Island in 1996. Uh, Tim Curry has had a long and distinguished career, and he plays so many different roles, uh, but he was good in this. Tim Curry said he based his performance on Rooster on a stagehand he knew while performing a play in New York City. So I thought that was interesting. So wait, he was doing a play and then the movie at the same time? No, he just based his character of Rooster on like a stagehand from a play he had done before he was doing the movie. Oh, okay. So. Okay. Uh, Steve Martin was actually offered the role of Rooster, but he turned it down when he heard he'd be working alongside Bernadette Peters, who he had been dating. They were breaking up at the time, and he felt it would be too painful to work with her for several months. So I could see Steve Martin in that role as well. That would have been a really, really good role for him. So, but Rooster is fun. It's kind of a small part. I will say this: I did not like uh, Rooster's girlfriend or mm -hmm. wife or girlfriend. That was. Yeah, Lily Saint Regis. I guess. Yeah, we're gonna talk about her next. All right. So she was played by Bernadette Peters. Over a career spanning more than six decades, Miss Peters has starred in musical theater, television, and film. Performed in solo concerts and released recordings. She's a critically acclaimed Broadway performer, having received seven nominations for Tony Awards and winning two, plus an honorary award. Regarded by many as the foremost interpreter of the works of Stephen Sondheim, Peters is particularly noted for her roles on the Broadway stage, including the musicals Mac and Mabel in 74, Sunday in the Park with George in 84, Song and Dance in 85, into the Woods, my personal favorite in 87, The Goodbye Girl in 93, Annie Get Your Gun in 99, Gypsy in 2003, A Little Night Music in 2010, Follies in 2011, and Hello Dolly in 2018. She's done a lot of theater. That's a lot of things. Yep. Peters first performed on the stage as a child and then a teenage actress in the 60s and in film and television in the 70s. She was praised for the early work and for appearances on, among other programs, The Muppet Show and The Carol Burnett Show for her roles in films including Silent Movie, The Jerk, Pennies from Heaven, as well as Annie. She's great. Now, you don't recognize her from other stuff, but she's been in a lot of other movies I've seen, and uh, she's really good. Well, she was pretty funny in this, but I know you didn't like her, but she not, you're not supposed to like her. Her character's not likable. I mean, it was, I mean she was funny, mm -hmm. but she, she just looked like the kind of girl who would just squeal and scream and try and do like absolutely nothing and then and then like make Rooster do all the work oh yeah something. it's very possible he's like one of those like girls <laughs> uh so what was pretty much a cameo was Edward Herman as President Franklin D. Roosevelt he was perhaps best known for his portrayals of Roosevelt in both the miniseries Eleanor and Franklin 1976 as well as this movie He's also known for his role in Gilmore Girls from 2000-2007. And, of course, Max in 1987's The Lost Boys, which we covered uh, earlier this year on the podcast. So, uh, I had to mention this person because I also remember him as a kid. But Jeffrey Holder as Punjab. Uh, and the word Punjab 
is uh, are named for Pakistan and India's Punjab province or Punjabi culture. You look familiar to you, right? I, fi- I figured it out why he looks familiar. Why is that? But he wasn't it. I don't think he was in it. Um, he looked like the guy from Daddy Daycare. Really? To me. That's Eddie Murphy. I know. Yeah, they don't look anything alike. To me, they do. <laughs> okay. And then I think he was in something else, but I can't remember the name of it. Okay. So... Well, in the 70s and 80s, he put his striking six-foot-six presence and bass voice to good use, hawking various products and TV commercials, including the soft drink 7-Up. And that's what I remember. He was really big on a 7-Up commercials in the 80s, and he would take a sip and he'd go, ah, refreshing, and he would say that with his deep voice. Uh, his most famous role was the heavy Baron Samedi in the James Bond movie Live and Let Die in 1973, which was Roger Moore's first turn as 007. What I thought was really cool is that he won the 1975 Tony Award for Best Direction of a Musical for his staging of the Broadway musical The Wiz, the all-African-American retelling of The Wizard of Oz. He was a very well-known dancer and choreographer as well, which I could see his dance moves in this movie as well. He did really well. Did he even dance? He did a little bit. I remember when they came, when, uh, when Grace... When they, she realized they were going to adopt Annie, oh, and she yeah, was dancing, yeah, and they yeah, came yeah. out, and him yeah. and uh, Mr. The a- Mr. Ass started dancing or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, I actually kind of liked his character. Mm-hmm. He was just the kind of guy who would just like be magic. Yeah, he was very magical and mystical. Yeah, it, uh, it kind of reminded me of like Sebastian from Newsies, because I know he he was doing cards backstage. Oh, not a character, Sebastian, but you're a a person. The the person who played uh, Crutchy. Crutchy. Yes. Yeah, Crutchy. Okay. Anyways. Yeah. They don't know who that is, but okay. I know. You can cut that out. I will. All right, well, let's talk about favorite scenes. Do you have any favorite scenes from the movie? Mm. Which scene stuck out to you that you really liked? Oh, my gosh. I can't think of one. This is hard. Did you like Hard Knock Life? Yeah. Okay. I liked the one about like the dog when when they when Annie found Sandy. Mm-hmm. And then um, I also liked how uh, um, the girls were trying were actually figured it out, and uh, that that Annie was gonna get like kidnapped or whatever. That that mm-hmm. rooster wasn't, or the yeah who rooster who rooster was pretending to be wasn't her real parents. Yeah, and then um how. It's also kind of funny how, because uh, from the 2014 version of uh, Easy Street, they were uh, Rooster and um, Miss Hannigan weren't brother and sister. Brother and sister, so they mm-hmm. were they were like secretly together. Yeah. And they were out like in a, in an outside restaurant kind of thing, and mm-hmm. doing singing Easy Street, like right. on a street, like right. on an actual street, but they right. did it in the house, and then they were like trying to find all the boxes to try and find. Uh, Annie's pocket and stuff. Mm-hmm. So those are a few scenes that I liked. Okay. Yep. Well, those are my two favorite scenes. Hard knock, or I would say iconic scenes. The scenes that I remember as from as from a, the scenes that I remember the most from as a kid, from being a kid, was the hard knock life scene because yeah. it's pretty early in the movie. And then I liked Easy Street because it's funny because Carol Burnett keeps walking into walls and she keeps trying to keep up with Rooster and his girlfriend, but she you tell she's like the third wheel so. Yeah. That was always funny. The odd one out. Mm-hmm. Um, I did like the scene where Daddy Warbucks was wanting to broadcast that he was looking for her parents. 
and they went oh, on the radio yeah, show yeah, yeah. and you kind of saw how radio works with all the fake sound effects and and then of course in him reading the he was uh he was reading the uh like stage direction stage directions yeah. drop page yeah like drop page or uh warbucks interrupts warbucks interrupts yeah da, 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 da. and i'm like this is just this yeah. is so this is funny mm-hmm. but how from uh my acting class it was just i'm just like i remember doing this when i first joined mm-hmm. reading I, that i didn't know stage directions yeah I exactly was like, i was like oh she's another parent it's just like just a few sentences that i gotta read mm-hmm. that everyone has to read because i had no like person saying it Right, right. Any other scenes you want to talk about? Um, I mean, I did like the radio scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one guy just kept trying to shush everyone, but and then uh, oh yeah, <laughs> Punjab would just, knock just, him out, just knocking him out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's, just, he's just like, Ugh. And, then, <laughs> and then and then he would be like, Shh, and he's like, nope. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. That was good. The movie is very long. It's two hours and nine minutes. I think it's probably too long. There's a lot of dance numbers, like you know, for broad, you know, for a Broadway show or a theater show, two two hours or two and a half hours is pretty normal. But you're expecting all the dancing and a lot of the songs and stuff. So uh, I think some of the songs could have been cut. Some of it could have been cut down. But knowing that it, they're trying to capture the musical feel even though it's on film it still kind of works but i still think it was a little too long but i did yeah, like it they could have cut at least a few scenes out yeah it just, didn't, it just didn't make sense yeah yeah there are a few things like they could have they could have explained outside of the songs or outside of the mm-hmm. other scenes whatever or like some of the songs they could have just cut out yeah it just didn't make sense to add it in there mm-hmm so let's talk about a few trivia things, some things about behind the scenes that might be kind of interesting. So this is the only version of Annie in which she starts the show with curly hair. and every other version, her hair is straight at the beginning and she gets a perm for the closing scene. So I know we, now we always think of Annie as having the curly hair. But I remember Annie from 2014. She had curly hair. We're talking time. about before this one. I know, I'm just saying. Yeah. But like in the 2014, she always had curly hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only characters in this movie that were in the Little Orphan Annie strip were Annie, uh, Warbucks, Sandy, Punjab, and the Asp. The last two were not in the play. When Martin Sharnan began work on the musical, the characters were cut because he didn't want any fantasy or magic. They were reinstated to incorporate more elements from the comic strip for the movie, which I thought was good. So originally the song Easy Street was going to be the biggest musical number in the film. For this purpose, a specially created outdoor street set was built costing more than $1 million. It took one week to shoot the scene, but on reviewing the dailies, the scene was considered to be overstuffed. Therefore, a reshoot was undertaken nearly two months after principal filming had been completed. The scene was replaced with a version shot indoors in a style that mimicked the ambiance portrayed in the original stage musical. And I've read another article where it said, basically, uh, John Huston thought that when it was like a big, big production, it took away from the three stars he had, which was Carol Burnett, Tim Curry, and Bernadette Peters. He felt like all the extra stuff kind of diminished them. We thought they, they shone better when they were in a smaller setting. Uh, but the other funny part about that is Carol Burnett is known for having, she had like a certain overbite issue, so her chin kind of stuck out some. And after the movie was done, she had surgery to kind of fix her overbite, and her chin got moved back some. 
But when they reshot the scenes for Easy Street, she had already had the surgery. So she made a comment that she goes into the closet and comes out with a different face. Uh, because if you look closely, you can tell her chin is different. But That's that's actually like pretty cool. Like, <laughs> it's like a transition, but like yeah. not a big transition because you don't really see it. Because you've, yeah. you've seen like half the movie oh, yeah, yeah. with like a, a, a different chin. And mm-hmm. then you, and then out of nowhere, you, she comes out of the closet and she's like, I'm fine a, now. Right, right. I mean, I wouldn't, I'd never noticed that until I read it. And even even knowing that and watching it today, I couldn't, there was a slight difference, but it wasn't big enough. Where it's like, oh my gosh, she looks like a totally different person. I mean, it was a slight adjustment. But yeah. um, for her, I'm sure it, it looked it looked yeah. bigger. Because since it was like my first time actually getting all the way through uh, the older Annie, mm-hmm. uh, I would I would have never noticed unless you said something before we watched it. Gotcha. And now these messages. What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the '80s: toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the '80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the '80s and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooge, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas Special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever, like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagney with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle, and Chant with the Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes! Comic books have been around for almost a century, and in the last two decades, we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. (sighs) What seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues. I don't think I can bear it. Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR! But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. All right, well, let's talk about box office and critical reception. So Annie opened theatrically on May 21st, 1982 in 14 theaters, including New York, Los Angeles, Dallas, and Toronto. It expanded to 1,000 theaters on June 18, 1982. It debuted at number 11 for the May 21st weekend box office, but failed to break the top 10 even after expanding to more theaters in June. So 
This movie was very expensive to make, but it was considered a failure, a flop, a bomb at the box office because it didn't make the money back. And it wasn't very well received by the critics either. So uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 49% on the tomato meter with a 69% audience score. IMDb has a 6.6 out of 10 with viewers and a 39 on Metacritic. So I guess no one really liked this movie. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I can see why it wasn't. It was ambitious and tried to be really big, but I think it was a little bit overstuffed and... They added too much. They added too much. They Well, they took out too much from the original musical, which was a big hit, and tried to add in other stuff to try to make it different, and it didn't work out. It didn't work out the way they wanted it to. So, anything else you want to say about the movie? I advise you to watch it. <laughs> if you yeah. haven't already? If you haven't already, I'd advise you to watch it. Yeah. All right, so you saw the 2014 version. Yep. And then we watched, you'd originally watched part of this version. Mm-hmm. You did watch the 90, 1999 Disney version, right? I, I think we tried to watch that one too. I guess. Yeah. I, oh, no. It was on the air uh, on, on the, the cable. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, we, we, start, we went like halfway through and then uh, we just didn't. You gave up on we it? We gave up on it. Yes. Yeah. It was just, I mean, we weren't paying attention because mom, mom Mom was mom was in the kitchen cooking something, and I mm-hmm. was just in the living room. So, gotcha. Yeah. So, but twenty fourteen still your favorite version. Yeah. Okay. Different generations, different things they like. That's okay. All right. But I, I mean, I still like it. So. Yeah, it was still fun. It was fun to watch together, right? Yes. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Hannah, for being a part of this episode. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. <laughs> thank you for having me. You're welcome. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow, subscribe, rate, review the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with someone who loves 80s flicks. Don't forget to follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And uh, we'll do some more. We got some more fun holiday movies coming up in the next month. So I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving and that you had a great time spending time with your family and loved ones and friends. And uh, let's get ready for Santa season. Well. <laughs> All right, thanks for listening to the 80s Week Flashback Podcast. I'm Tim Williams. Good night, good people. talk about their favorite movies and what they can teach us about being a man featuring the coolest guests murder somebody is not like killing an ant the most gratifying laughs it's tombstone what can i say (laughs) (laughs) and a fresh take on movies like you've never heard before this will be the thing that gets written on his proverbial tombstone we aren't here to criticize the movies you love but to praise them for how they apply to our lives as husbands fathers and really all men in general so buckle up your seatbelts, because Manly Movies is here. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast catcher. And remember, man up. Hey everybody, do you ever just sit around with your friends and reminisce about the days and how things used to be when you were a kid or a teenager or maybe even a young adult? 
TV shows and the movies that she watched at the time and how things just aren't quite the same today? Well, let me tell you, I've got the place for you. My name is Chris Adams, and I'm the host of the podcast Retro Life for You. And here at Retro Life for You, we talk about and discuss movies and TV that is retro. And we are going back from the 80s and the 90s and into the 2000s. Hey, sometimes we might even touch back to the 70s if we're feeling good. If this is for you, make sure you look for us on everywhere that you can find your podcast at. Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, Google, Stitcher, or hosted on Anchor FM. And make sure you follow us on all the major networks and leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Look forward to hearing from you. You still here? It's over. Go home. Go.